0: hi i'm milton allen turner and this week i'm talking with saint ignatius high school history teacher robert j Corgan. during the interview we'll discuss the teaching of redemption and reconstruction in u.s history courses how certain groups attempt to control a historical narrative and the importance of allowing silenced voices to be heard.
1: This is just the voices that have been in silence for so right. long, finally being heard. It's not new in mm-hmm. the sense that it's it's a rewriting of history. It's, it's the history. So, yeah, bringing in the voices that are, are, are not heard from is very important mm-hmm. um, to give us context. That's, that's, and that's everything, right? Context is everything. It's, right. Ultimately, is what we do as historians. It's the, the whole point, right? Learning about <laughs> what happened in Ohio in you know 1910. Really, who cares? But it, 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 it's context context, uh, to make us understand the world in which we live without that, we're just uh, talking in the wind,
0: shouting in the wind. Welcome to this week's episode of Worldviews. Since Bob highlights the importance of context, I'd like to place our conversation in a bit of context and particularly the historical periods we're discussing during this interview. I was particularly interested in discussing the, er- the eras of Reconstruction and redemption following the U.S. Civil War. So the Reconstruction period is often the period referred to between the years of 1865 to 1877 following the U.S. Civil War. During this period and the discussion, we talk about what are often referred to as the Reconstruction Amendments to the Constitution. These are the 13th Amendment, ratified in 1865, which abolished slavery but did not define which rights the freedmen would have. It also includes the 14th Amendment, ratified in 1868, which is sometimes referred to as the Second Constitution, because it redefined the United States as a modern nation. Among its provisions, the 14th Amendment enshrines the idea of birthright citizenship, meaning that anyone born in the United States automatically received U.S. citizenship. And it defined citizenship as a federal matter rather than a state matter. And perhaps most importantly or famously, It provides for the, quote, equal protection under the law, unquote. Finally, the 15th Amendment, passed and ratified in 1870, prohibited the denial of voting rights to, quote, on account of race, color, previous condition of servitude, unquote. The 15th Amendment, furthermore, did not prevent the implementation of literacy tests, poll taxes, and other methods of indirectly disenfranchising freed people and other minority groups. Immediately after, this period of Reconstruction is a period often referred to as the period of redemption. Henry Louis Gates Jr. defined redemption as the period immediately following Reconstruction during which the gains of Reconstruction were systematically eliminated or erased and replaced with an ideology that, quote-unquote, redeemed the Old South. This goes roughly from 1877, following the contested election of 1876, and the removal of federal troops from southern states reclaimed by the Southern Democrats and extends until roughly 1915 and President Woodrow Wilson's screening of D.W. Griffith's movie, Birth of a Nation, at the White House. During this period, we see actions such as the Supreme Court's 1883 decision, which struck down the Civil Rights Act of 1875, leading many states to begin to widely enact Jim Crow or segregationist laws. Welcome to this edition of Worldviews, where I have the pleasure of interviewing the inimitable Robert J. Corrigan, our history teacher at St. Ignatius High School, and also Master of World History, of AP Euro History, and also one of the few teachers who not only has graded AP exams and has written questions for the AP exams, but also has, or I believe currently still has, um, a syllabus as one of the four model syllabi for the AP AP U.S. History Chorus. Thank you very AP much. AP European, actually. Oh, sorry. Actually, yeah, Euro. AP yeah. Euro. Oh, wow. <laughs> Great. My bad for AP Euro. Thank you and welcome, Bob. Oh, thank you, Milton. Happy to be here. Originally, my thought on um, doing a podcast this week, well, many things that have been going on over the last couple of weeks, but I've always been sort of fascinated with the part of American history right after Reconstruction that at first I'd never heard of, that um, – Henry Louis Gates and, re, and some others referred referred to as redemption, where in high school I had a very long period of bad history and the Civil War and then afterwards kind of like, yeah, then there was this period of reconstruction that didn't last long and kind of failed and then we just kind of jumped to World War One but <laughs> nothing in between and then Henry Louis Gates and reading *Stony the Road, I was just so fascinated by this idea of a period of redeemers and redemption where there was a very systematic as well as bloody and use of terrorism campaign campaign in the south to basically rewrite history and redo the vision of the civil war what the radical republicans try to do afterwards and basically erase any um input that they had there's a german word i've actually never ran into until a couple of weeks ago my German is awful, which is like sovereignty of interpretation, largely whoever rules as a sovereignty gets to rewrite the, the history and tell the story. And that really sort of fascinated me that now, century and a half later, that we still, those redeemers, took over uh, the narrative. And fortunately, when talking to you and others in our department, learning that, yeah, there is the other history. But unfortunately, a lot of what people taught from sloppy Texas-approved textbooks really has nothing to do with reality.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, you know, it's, yeah, I I tend to think of the sort of the pinnacle of that rewriting of uh, Birth of a Nation, you know, D.W. Griffith's epic film that, uh, is an embracing of this notion of the lost cause, right? That uh, everything was fine. Uh, people of color and white people were having a great old time prior to the civil war, and then the damn Yankees <laughs> showed up and ruined everything. <laughs> exactly. uh, and when you have President Woodrow Wilson having a private screening of it and saying it's it's like writing history with lightning, and this is a, a man with a PhD in history a former president of Princeton University. Atlanta. And, and they, I mean, they, they won, the narrative won, uh, and mm-hmm. it, it took Till the more recent times, people like Eric Foner uh, and uh, other historians to really go back into it and explain that, though, that wasn't the case. That, that it, as we discussed previously, that Reconstruction was murdered. Mm-hmm. Um, it was intentionally destroyed by the North and the South, you know, obviously focused on the South. But the North was very much complicit in the whole thing and, and right. uh, was far more interested in going back to making money and, you know, 17 years or not even 12 years of Reconstruction was more than enough to make up for 250 years of slavery. It's fine. Exactly. Go about your way.
0: (laughs) It's just like, was it earlier this year or last year? I can't remember. No, it would have been this year. That's right. After January 6th, where Ted Cruz actually talked about the, quote unquote, compromise of 1877 at the election of 1876 as being this great high watermark. Like, no, like you said, that was exactly you have basically the Southerners creating this false slate of uh, Democratic um, candidates submitted because of all the intimidation and the false results yeah. in the South that they couldn't decide between either. Uh, was it Tilden and Hayes? Tilden Tilden. And, Hayes yeah. and,
1: and, and that's like what, I, what I tell <laughs> the students. I'm like, if you're going to sell people down the river for someone don't do it for Rutherford B. Hayes. I mean, it's it's like, he's no FDR, you know?
0: But then, as you said, it's basically, they give it to Hayes just as like, just to, because the North was tired of Reconstruction. The South was like, fine, it's been too long. There was, I believe, also uh, a recession and economic depression going to the North and it's largely the North yes. was just like, we're sick of this. So let them do what they're going to do in the South and just yes. withdraw the troops. And again, let it die a miserable death.
1: The Democrats know how to deal with the Negro. They have, or let, let them <laughs> let them deal with it. It's, it's fine. Yeah.
0: And especially and, after the history of a race are looking at, it, well, I believe it was, it was it, Tennessee or Kentucky that never did ratify the 13th, 14th, or 15th amendments until the, yeah. until the 20th century, to like yeah. 1995. Like, <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> Sorry. Like it was originally supposed to be a, one of the conditions of reentering the union. It's like, oh, well, whenever you get around to it.
1: Yeah, it's, fine. <laughs> it's not important. <laughs> it's it's on the basic civil rights. Yeah, <laughs> they were right on the 12th Amendment, though. They got right on top of that one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> had their priorities in order for right, their own minds. Right. <laughs> Actually, um, Sandra um, always makes this great compliment. She loves quoting you um, from one of the first times where you met her, where you talked about that you wanted students to come out of your history class with a very a very critical eye for American history and American yeah. viewpoints that they shouldn't come out as the rah-rah jingoists, but should take everything with a very extreme uh, bitter pill of salt in viewing things. And yeah. A healthy skepticism. A healthy, you know, healthy skepticism. So thank skepticism. you. All right. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and So how do you um, approach this um, period of history and how do you, um, how do students react is I'm actually amazed when I was taking a course last year through facing history and ourselves again as an almost 60 year old male reading things going like oh my God nobody taught me this or it's like one of those things I was kind of aware but not quite aware and something just flying in the face of what had been conventional wisdom or what I know teachers have had or grade school books had from people that I know now as grade school teachers had no background in history. We were just reading whatever was there because they were an art or, or math teacher. And so they had to be one page ahead of us in the book and teaching us the propaganda that they had. But um, how do you approach thorny issues in your class?
1: Yeah, you no know, you know criticism to uh, many of our uh, colleagues who are both coaches and teachers because <laughs> they, they are excellent teachers and, and no doubt. Um, but for so long that was the role of the the football coach was to be the history teacher because you just throw the textbook out there, you put in a video, you push play and
0: you're done. Uh, but who cares it's history right it's that mm-hmm. um, and, and you know, actually that absolutely true my history. AP US history teacher was a football coach, and largely that is what he had. It was a couple of notes he had that obviously somebody else read for him, or brought in the VCR, pressed the tape, and then walked out and did whatever he did.
1: (laughs) Absolutely, and and we're lucky we have you know football coaches who went to Princeton, right? (laughs) (laughs) We're okay in that way. Um, Yeah, it's it it is it's a challenge. Um, People are very, especially in these times, they're uh, resistant to anything that is perceived to be partisan or, or, overly critical of American history. Uh, I, every year uh, it, it comes up with uh, this past year, we've talked about it previously, just the term American exceptionalism, uh, mm-hmm. and then people gave me pushback over that. I'm like, I didn't make this term up. This is, <laughs> this is real. And it's, it's something we have to understand. If we're going to understand American history, we have to realize that Thomas Jefferson had slaves, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then that, that's a thing. That's part of the, the, the reality of, of American history. Um, and not to really say it was just a, a product of the time it's, it's, it's ridiculous. But um, in terms of reconstruction, um, you know, the students have, as you said, almost no knowledge of it. Uh, it is uh, it, it's something that is uncomfortable. Um, it is embarrassing. It's painful. Uh, and so most people would rather just, as you said, go from civil war to world war one, that's far more, we won <laughs> kind of thing, right? They we the right one. And, uh, uh, and America is morally superior to all these other characters who are in the muck and, and we're so great. And, um, to face that and, and say, no, no, it's not true. It's not something that people want to do. So I think for the most part, luckily, you know, in, in AP US history, uh, by the time we get to reconstruction, I think. The students have learned to trust me uh, that I'm I'm not selling something Mm -hmm. Um, or at least I'm trying to sell the truth as much as I know it to be true. Uh, And uh, so I I think they're more willing to accept it and be like, oh, my God, I didn't realize that happened. Uh, So and and it's (laughs) there's no break. Right. It's civil war ends. 13th Amendment's ratified. Mississippi passes the first black code in 1865 to go in effect in 1866. There's no time. There's no break. There's no like, oh, you know, (laughs) let's think about this. It's boom, boom. We want to recreate uh, the institution of slavery under some other means. Uh, We will grant you uh, the right to have uh, marriage. Right. Well, but then uh, we will simply uh, extricate uh, all the other rights out of the Thirteenth <laughs> Amendment, um, and make sure that you return to the plantation. Uh, quite literally, right? we will mm-hmm. will not allow you to rent or own land in certain areas. We will mandate that you have a job, and that job will be only the only job available. To will be on the plantation as a sharecropper, uh, right. and we will construct a situation that ensures that you are politically uh, emasculated uh, and uh, financially obligated to the former slave owners. It's, it's uh, and I think when you explain it that way, the students see it. I was like, this is the law here. Here's the law. This was written. Why did they do this? And, and um, unless you're willfully ignorant, which some people are, um, <laughs> you have to see it as just slavery under another name. Right.
0: And that's one of the things that, again, I wish I'd had history teachers like you guys when, I was in school, but as you mentioned with AP and say whether would document best questions, or as you said, here is the law that actually having students reading the laws or reading contemporary um, journals, notes, newspaper articles about what was going on at the time, where before we were just getting someone's notes or a really poorly edited textbook that was probably had inaccurate information to begin with, as opposed to here is a letter or journal or here's a letter to the editor or here's a political cartoon of the time. It's like, wow, (laughs) sort of dealing with that, that having students have a little taste of Authentic documents and their own trying a little bit of historiography. Or how do you reconcile this letter with this editorial? Or how do you reconcile this law with this law in another state that's in direct contradiction to what the Constitution and the amendments say? (laughs) Well, and and, and the
1: the textbooks are 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 so. Uh, they bear so much of the blame uh, because they don't—they they don't take things out. I mean, there's—you there, got to figure it's like edition fourteen of this textbook, and there's stuff in there from edition one that has never been updated. And and I think one of the, the problems we have as you alluded to previously is that you know people look at science and they say, okay, we have new information about science, so science is going to change. But they look at history as being right. done. It's done, <laughs> and it's like no, we don't. We, we don't. I mean. Pre Howard Zinn to post Howard Zinn. I mean, the, the, mm-hmm. the, even at the collegiate level, you're, you're talking about a radically different narrative. Um, right. And and so when you get textbooks that are steeped in incorrect and you know this lost cause information, or, or written by people in the 1950s who are erecting civil war monuments <laughs> to fight against the civil rights movement, like you, you have to go back and break all that stuff up and, and introduce new views of history and other people's voices. Right. And then, you know, you, you've spoken before about critical race theory and things like that. It's like, no, this is just, this is just the voices that have been in for so right. long finally being heard. It's not new mm-hmm. in the sense that it's, it's a rewriting of history. It's the history that we're finally paying attention to.
0: Well, this past weekend, I had the, um, Pleasure of attending an anti racism for educators seminar online. And they had a curriculum specialist, Dr. Rich Milner, who Talked about what he considered to be the three parts of the curriculum: the explicit that's taught, the implicit that includes our biases that may not be explicitly taught, but most importantly, that he brought up was the null, what our students are never exposed to, mm-hmm. and so much like she said of this and redemption or other things, it just not students aren't exposed to; they just aren't given those voices of the representation. And I, for me, is very powerful that when looking at curriculum that we now are taking into account and need to take more account of the null curriculum, what Whose voices are absent, whose stories aren't being told that need to be told and not just what are we implying automatically and wink, wink, not nod. this is what we want you to believe, but just who's entirely absent from the narrative that needs to be included.
1: You know, that's it's interesting. I was I I did not use those terms in my, my own brain, but I was thinking about that. Uh, as we are going through this discussion of, of the, the, and of course, I, I know you are a, uh, a longtime supporter of the Cleveland baseball team and, and you love baseball. And this, this discussion where, you know, they're Cleveland.com or Cleveland Plain deer is interviewing people you know, who are outside of a world, you know, a wrestling tournament. Cause that's where I go for, for interesting opinions. Um, but uh, they're asking them about, you know, this name change and, it's like he, this isn't your story, man. You know, it's just like mm-hmm. your claim it's it's our heritage. No, 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 no. Maybe if you took a step back and saw all of the history and understood why maybe native peoples or indigenous peoples would have an issue with them being used as a as a term for a baseball team. Right. Maybe take a step back. Right. Uh, and so that that's a – I try my best is Uh, when I begin the course in in APU's history to bring in, and I'm no expert on Native American history and indigenous people's histories. um, But I try my best to bring those voices because those are, often literally mm-hmm. signed because they don't have a written language for us to look back to. Right. Uh, so they're, 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 there's nothing there. So you, there's a lot of, of you know, archeology and, and anthropology that has to be brought into the classroom in that way. So yeah, bringing in the voices that are, are, are not heard from is very important um, to give us context. And that's, that's, and that's everything, right? Context is everything. It's ultimately right. is what we do as historians. It's the, the whole point, right? Learning about <laughs> what happened in Ohio, and. You know, 1910, really, who cares? But it, 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 it's context uh, to make us understand the world in which we live. Without that, it's, it's we're just uh, talking in the wind, shouting in the
0: wind. Right. And as you were saying, that also reminded me, one of the terms that it's always gotten on my nerves is when people talk about revisionist history and it's like well isn't that what we should be doing as we get more information (laughs) or as we get more wisdom going back and revising our perception that's exactly the scientific method as you said what you would do in science or almost any other field is as you get more information and a larger data set then you revise your conclusions and come up with a new theory for that but it's like in history it's like no no this is what i've grown up with that makes me uncomfortable but it's like revisionist history we should always be revising our viewpoints of what the past was particularly because if we don't have videotape, other than we just have either the oral histories or some cases, some written documentation. But then keeping in mind who's writing that history and who's not, that we should always be revising and <laughs> rethinking things. But that's viewed as a bad word in some. Yeah, manners. the
1: the, uh, the periodic table doesn't stop with hydrogen. Yeah, you know? <laughs> we got, we got the one. We don't need anything else. We got it. Moving on. <laughs> Yeah. So, And one of the things that uh, is one of the most challenging things, I think, because it is such it's a a present thing. Right. It is. um, And it's uh, a an area that is rife with all sorts of dangers is the role of of the Supreme Court in Mm -hmm. severely undercutting uh, what reconstruction was supposed to be. So you get these amendments, right? You you get the 13, 14 and 15. And what what, always amuses me when when we talk about you know, looking at original constructionalism. Okay. So what did the, what did the founding fathers intend? Uh, okay. It's a hard thing to do sometimes to go back to what they meant about, you know, the right. second amendment. <laughs> what, what, what always gets me about like 13, 14, 15 is these, these incredibly important Supreme court decisions, the 1873 and 1876. I mean, the dudes who wrote the sill across the street, man, like just go over and ask them, like, mm-hmm. what did you mean by this? You don't have to delve into any weird 200 year old mindset of James Madison. It, it's, it's, Dudes are right across the street. What did you mean by equal protection under the law? Just ask them and they'll Mm -hmm. tell you. This is what we meant. And what you're saying, court, uh, is not exactly what we meant. (laughs) Um, And that gets into the whole, you know, is the Supreme Court something that is apolitical? And of course, as we know it, it's not. It's always been political. And to claim it otherwise is ridiculous. And so uh, to see. So, you know, with (laughs) one of my favorites uh, is uh, when we we sort of evaluate uh, U.S. v. Cruikshank, uh, which is the one the court decision that basically said that individuals can't be prosecuted under the Fourteenth Amendment for violating someone else's civil rights, and so we go through this, and, and I uh, put that in, in opposition to 1886 uh, Southern uh, Santa Clara County versus Southern Pacific Railroad, which is the court dictum. It actually wasn't even the court decision that ruled that corporations were people. Mm-hmm. The theory of 1886, <laughs> the court saying corporations are people, but in 1876,
0: they're saying that people aren't people.
1: Blows my mind. It definitely blows my mind.
0: Well, the two things that um blew my mind of that same error is um one with the um Civil with the um, Supreme Court civil rights decisions where mm-hmm. that basically it's like so extremely, it's like, oh, well, okay, well, if it's states or if it's private, yeah, we don't have any part of that. It doesn't really apply. So we're only right. saying specifically federal government, but individuals you can do whatever you want. And exactly. Hey, exactly. States, yeah, we can do whatever cool. you want. Yeah, that's cool. And I think it was Foner. One of the things that I read was based that from 1873 to the end of the 19th century, there were 150 cases about the Reconstruction Amendments, but only 20 of them actually dealt with black people. Right, 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 right. <laughs> the vast majority, as you said, we're dealing with corporations or like. But the whole idea of the Reconstruction Amendments and you know getting rid of slavery and black people, but only 20 of those cases actually dealt with black people. <laughs>
1: right, right. It's, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. It's a, it's you know and and uh, yeah, yeah. To to the court. Basically, until we see uh, the flip, uh, well, I guess beginning in the 19 teens, but really into the 20s, they repeatedly ruled against individuals as protection under the law. Mm-hmm. But it's like, these are explicitly designed; they were explicitly written <laughs> to protect people of color against state action and individual action. And it, it's and yet you are saying it doesn't, and it's 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 absolutely mind blowing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and you know the the, the famous dissent in Plessy. Uh, by John Marshall Harlan, you know, it's basically
0: yeah. dude. We like, what was the, um, slave, what was the, the only slaveholder, one of the. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, he
1: was. He protected
0: slavery when he was young. It was a, it's amazing. So the dude's like, "What you're
1: going, what you're doing right now is you're going to create two classes of people: the underprivileged, and, and of course, that's exactly what happened. It's, mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's, Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing uh, how just incredibly thorough. Uh, both the state, local, and federal governments were at, at killing Reconstruction and making sure uh, that the rights of, of people of color and, and minority groups were just simply expunged and, and kept oppressed.
0: Right, that's one of the things that sort of hit me, as you said, how thoroughly this went and how many levels it went, sort of as much as somebody had to say that's in critical race theory, but how systematically, in terms of law, constitutions, civil society, civil liberties, cons- um. Individuals as well as um corporations, and how many of these still stand today, and people right. just think that they just sort of naturally happened or sort of an accident of nature. It's like no, particularly with the Ku Klux Klan, the white line, as you mentioned, the Black Laws, or there mm-hmm. was that another group I'd read about, the Red Shirts. So it's like I was sort of amazed at how flagrantly terroristic some of these groups were at just actually basically standing in front and shooting people if they actually dared to show up to vote.
1: Right, right, absolutely. You know, it was uh, the... You know, the, the term race riot is thrown around. It's, it's a term that, uh, unfortunately, is, is, is replete in, in history works. And it's like, OK, it was, it was a protest or it was a movement. Or, as you said, they're just voting. It's, 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 right. this, this is not a riot. They're right. just lined up to vote. They're trying to exercise their rights. But, you know, the Elaine, Arkansas um, situation where African-American farmers are attempting to unionize. And so they send in the U.S. military to put them down. It's like just trying to be human uh for a person of color was basically illegal
0: mm-hmm. but then now people are like oh put a piece of cloth over your face and it's like oh my god that's my what freedoms like, <laughs> which also don't get me started on of all the things that the Reconstruction, how the 14th amendment has been construed to <laughs> by right. some to have all kinds to have all kinds of meanings from its original intent but then right But we're not actually dealing with the black people and for whom it was originally intended. Oh, no, we don't want to address those issues. But let's come up with all kinds of other rights we can have in that to deal with the majority and everyone else. Well, without granting the black people the rights it was intended to give.
1: I have a right not to bake you a cake. (laughs) 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 Okay, that's what it was intended to do. That's it. Mm. Yeah, you know, it's it's, uh, the. The first court case that I deal with in, in the class with Reconstruction is uh, it's called the Slaughterhouse Case. It comes out of Louisiana, which it, it, it it's, it's funny how many times I have to bring up Louisiana. It was it was just a it was awful. I mean, it was a hotbed of just absolute horrific violence um, hmm. uh, all over the place. Every corner of that that state was was, uh, was terrified. People of color were terrified, terrorized. Um, but as you said, the, the, the first court decision that deals with the Fourteenth Amendment dealt with white share a uh, slaughterhouse owners in Louisiana who didn't like the fact that they couldn't have the slaughterhouse north of the city so that they threw all their waste into the river and surprise, surprise, you have disease spreading because people are drinking <laughs> out of the, of the Mississippi. So yeah, the, the, this, this court decision that, that said, you know, that the, and interesting, the interesting thing about it is that the, the Supreme court chief justice who wrote the decision actually intended to be, he saw a, this was a good law in his estimation, right? So, and there was a legitimate complaint by these slaughterhouse owners that they were not getting equal protection under the law. So what he argues is that in the 14th Amendment, it says you are granted rights as a citizen of the state and of the United States. And what he said was that and Uh was incredibly important. That in the federal court system. If your rights as a U.S. citizen were violated, you could sue under the 14th Amendment. Mm -hmm. But if your rights as a state citizen were violated, (laughs) it had to go to state courts. And that's all well and good. If Louisiana is continued to be under the control of the federal government. Exactly. But when it's redeemed, now you've got a Klansman who's no a judge. <laughs> you got a Klansman who are on the jury. You got a Klansman who's the prosecuting attorney. You got a Klansman who is the, the sheriff. You ain't getting your rights protected. You're done. Mm-hmm. You're done. And the, the the court, the federal courts are not there to protect you. So uh yeah, it was it was a bit that amendment was eviscerated, what's that, five years after it was ratified.
0: Five right. years. Mm-hmm. If you could rewrite American education or history education, what would be so your what would be your biggest pet peeve or your big the biggest thing that you would change? Wow, well,
1: <laughs> that's a lot. Uh, there's a lot there, um, you know, I, I think in a very sort of regional way, um, and I I believe this when I was a student. Uh, you know, is the responsibility that Northern states bore for the continuation of the institution of slavery. And as we said, uh, the burying of reconstruction just doesn't, we, we don't think about it, right? We, 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 we tend to see ourselves as Northerners as being somehow above the fray that we were the good ones. We were the right. ones, who you, you know, you crossed the river Jordan into Cincinnati and you were free and that's because we were good people. Um, and of course, that's simply not the case. And, and right. uh, as we've talked about in the past, you know, you look at uh, segregation in the United States and the, the most segregated cities in the United States are Cleveland, Buffalo, Chicago. <laughs> yeah, right. it, it, ain't, it ain't Alabama. It ain't exactly. Georgia. You know, we're, so I think for for a, a northerner, I, I think to have that narrative front and center at all times is very important. Um, and also, that, and I, I guess maybe at, a, at the very root, of this, I guess it's maybe a part of that. Uh, as I mentioned before, American exceptionalism, right? This mm-hmm. notion that we are, we are the city upon a hill. We are different. We are, we are not touched <laughs> by everything that happens in this world. And it's just so, it, it's ridiculous it, it, and it, it's patently false uh, that we are just. You know, I was thinking before we started talking today. I, from time to time, that scene from Glory pops in my mind with uh, when they're sitting looking over. Uh, the pond and Matthew Broderick sends Senzo Washington if he wants to carry the flag and they say they have this brief conversation and it's none of us get out of here clean we're all down in it <laughs> you know, and, and I think that that's that's got to be front and center when we talk about this. We're all down in it. We're all, right. we're all none of us are clean. Nobody's hands are clean, uh, whether mm-hmm. it be people who are actively participating in disenfranchising voters or people who are just turned the other way and don't pay attention to that. And it doesn't necessarily mean you've got to be out in the streets. It's cool if you are. Um, but that or just benefiting um, from uh, a, a systemic racism that that uh, ensures that I will never be followed in a store or pulled over because I happened both the way I look, it's never gonna happen. And, and so uh, we're all part of it. Uh, I think that's gotta be, uh, that, that would, I guess maybe that would be the whole that We're all part of it, whether it be America or us as individuals.
0: That just reminded me of another quote from um, Dr. Milner from this past weekend, where he said that the highest form of curriculum is social action. So when you mention about going out in the street, that for him, the idea that like social activism and engagement is not something that's extracurricular outside of the curriculum, it's actually the highest form of it that after you get to some dissemination of information and hopefully getting a critical sense and idea that then spurring to critical or social action to work against injustice, he viewed as being the natural extension, the highest form of education and not now. So, the, oh, no, that's something very different. But no, that's an integral part of what we should be doing as teachers and educators.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, this is, it, well, and, you know, I think what that helps to do uh, is it shows that. You know, we're not up there just blabbing our lips, <laughs> blabbing our lips for no reason, right? That the education and one of the things at the very beginning of, of the course, I, I there's a quote that I used from James Lowen about from lies my teacher told me um, <laughs> about textbooks, right? And then we take a look at the textbook and um, and that we, we we need to be active participants in this, right? That this is this is not a passive thing. That 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 history is not something that is just there for our that's so why I hate the term history buff. It's like, it drives me absolutely insane. Like it, it is not, history is not there for you to dress up like uh, a Confederate soldier and prance around Gettysburg every July, right? It's, it's not, it's, it's something that's real and it calls us to action and it calls us to, to be participants in this society. And, and if we're going to be, uh, Good participants and intelligent participants, then we have to understand our history and we have to understand the mistakes we made. Otherwise, we keep on making them again. And, and not that the history is, it's not repetitive, it's cyclical, right? No. Um, and there's a, a wonderful you know bit a few years back in The Onion uh, when that was still relevant. And uh, there was a, a very little quote. And there's a picture of a historian in front of a pedestal or a, a podium, and said, which had, historians urge lawmakers to look back at history before making decisions that do the same thing they did in the past. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, like let take a moment. Yeah. And it was, it was uh, it, I went and, went and voted uh, in the, the special election uh, on Tuesday. And it was just disheartened. There were two people there, two. Mm -hmm. I was just like, really? This is kind of important. (laughs) Yeah,
0: I was. And I also I'm I'm an early bird. So I was at the election at the polls at like seven o'clock and the same thing. There was nobody there in and out. But I have to say, I was happy later on the day driving around going to certain polls and Polls around ward one and ward four and other parts of so the city. I saw many more people there by the end of the day. So I was happy to see that there was more engagement there, but I was actually a little surprised and I was there at seven o'clock in the morning. I was in and out less than five minutes. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and, and you know, of course, that gets into the whole, and also linking back to to, to redeemers and, and and the end of reconstruction of of gerrymandering. You know,
0: mm-hmm. it's just like <laughs> like,
1: why exactly is my representative representing Bath? I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> Those yeah. are a little bit different interests than the, mm-hmm. than the city of Cleveland.
0: So <sighs> When you were talking about um, reasons for studying history, it reminded me as well of one of the, um, my favorite quotes by a British historian. I think it's Robert Namier. I might have his, last, his first name wrong. But his quote was, the reason to study history is to gain a historical sense, mm-hmm. to get an idea of how things don't happen. And which I always said, it's sort of to get a BS meter. That the reason to study history isn't just to memorize a bunch of facts, right. but to realize when somebody says something to go like, that, that doesn't sound that doesn't sound right. <laughs> so kind of like you said, so we don't repeat the same things over and over again because like, no, the world actually doesn't work like that. And like, no, right. that isn't really gonna work. That having an idea of knowing how the world should work or what has happened and what isn't going to work.
1: Yeah, it's it's uh, unfortunately that is a when you realize that it's uh At least when you're a gentleman like me who can't shut his mouth, it's it's, it's (laughs) the burden to bear amongst the population as a whole, (laughs) my dear friends. You've been witness to it yourself. (laughs) uh, There are times when I just can't shut my mouth. (laughs) It's it's like, no, that is so horribly wrong. I don't know where you're getting that information from,
0: but it is inaccurate. Yeah, and from somebody who suffers from the same illness, (laughs) I suffer from the same illness. When I hear something incredibly horribly wrong, it just I can't. I try to be polite and try to be adept about it, but I, there's it comes a point where I'm just like, no, that's oh, that's, <laughs> that's just that is... flat out wrong, and right. I'm sorry that you <laughs> believe that, but I'm taking it now as my personal mission to correct you with that, and I'm trying to do it as politely and empathetically as possible, but sometimes those misunderstandings and mistruths just have to be stamped out.
1: Right. Absolutely. But again, that, that gets to, to go back. That, that is what gets us to the point of the lost cause where, you, where people buy into a complete nonsense and then it becomes truth. Right. You know, and, and then 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 you have to then you have to revise and you've got to go back <laughs> in and dig out. And, and I, I can never remember. I, I, I never remember the term. You, you, you probably know it quite well. Um, that notion that when you say something that's incorrect and then you go back and correct it, the act of correcting it reinforces the, the exactly oh, yeah. so it's like <laughs> so going back and saying this was not the case it's, it's like Ugh. <laughs> but didn't you say yeah i said that but it's wrong i said it was wrong now it was right and so that is, right. it's like a it's doubly difficult in that way yeah
0: so what do you uh, so what do you think that history teachers do a great job of in general, I'm going to also, that's uh, the second part of that. And what do you think you do a very good job of? What do you personally, what do you enjoy teaching the most or think you do best? So sort of too, what do you think as a profession you do very well? And then what do you personally think you do very well or enjoy teaching or doing?
1: You know, I, I think that fi- recently, as I mentioned previously, um, and by recently uh, as a historian, <laughs> the
0: last 50 <laughs> plus years
1: or so, um, I think... We have made such great strides in giving the voiceless a voice or that's that's actually that's that's not the term I want to use, allowing those voices to be heard. We're not giving Mm. them anything. right. Uh, We're we're finally Mm. as because it Mm -hmm. is history is overwhelmingly a white male field of study. Uh, I don't know why that's the case. Uh, I don't know if it's because those voices weren't there before. So why would you, why would you want, if you were a woman or a person of color or, or a underrepresented group, why would you want to go into a class with, you know, 25 people that look like me and, and hear our voice over and over and over and over again? You're like, ah, where's my voice? And it doesn't say so. Um, but I think we've done as, as a field of study over the last few decades, we've been so much better at opening up uh well, I guess opening up the field of study to underrepresented groups who then allow that voice to be heard because the, the, those groups are the ones that are to go and they're going to find the primary sources. They're going to write the text. Um, they're going to write the work. So they're, they're going to publish articles. They're, they're going to create the 1619 project in the New York Times, right? I mean, <laughs> right. It, it's, white dudes aren't going to do that or it's <laughs> that white dudes are going to do that uh, because it doesn't interest them, right? They're more, again, mm-hmm. they're, they're prancing around in World War One German uniforms. On them, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and I think that the institution that we, we teach at is, is, um, uh, it's an interesting quarter. Right? It's it's complex as that institution is. Uh, and uh, I've asked, been asked a number of times, you know, why, um, well, actually I think you were there the most recent time. Why do I teach at that place? Mm-hmm. Um, and I always fall back on, if not me, who, if not us, who? Right. Right. Um, And I think that what I try to do, I don't I I think I do it well. What I try to do is to explain, to offer uh, different voices uh, than those that they they tend to hear, uh, as you referenced before. And I think my my sister is a great school teacher She teaches seventh grade girls, which is terrifying to me.
0: (laughs) Um, Same here.
1: (laughs) uh, But I think that's. I, I give all the credit in the world to grade school teachers because they are—they are—they have so much patience, and they have to deal with things that we don't have to deal with. Right. Um. For the most, you know, kids, people are like, a, teaching, you know, uh, high school because terrible." Like, no, they're fine. They're—they're they're idiots. Yeah. Right. God love them. You know, they—they they, they know they are. They know they're, they're right. in a, I mean, in in the particularly most high school way. boys because exactly. they forget
0: things. That, said, seventh grade girls are terrifying because they remember everything. Yes, they and do. will hold grudges forever, and like the yeah. most terrifying people on the planet. High school boys forget things five minutes later. They may be in a fight, but they don't remember what they thought about five minutes later. So they're fine. It's just... exactly.
1: <laughs> they're they're easy. They're 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 lovable, <laughs> oafs for the most part, right? Right. And they want to learn. They want to, they, they really do. For the most part, they do want to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that what I what I try to do, and I think I I, I hope I do a good job of, is. Giving them access to those voices to the things they don't know because they didn't right. they weren't taught them they, they were taught Ohio history seventeen different times when they were in grade school and grade I'm glad you know the mound builders were there that's an important thing to know but it didn't it didn't stop there right <laughs> those people were systemically removed from this area either through disease or through intentional action by various governments so I I, I try to bring those voices in as much as I can um, so that because you know when, when we become adults it's hard to Remove things that we already know. Right? We, right. we become, you know, we we bury that information. We keep that information, then, to have somebody challenge that when we're, you know, forty years old is it's not an easy thing to accept. Uh, and so if you hear it at least once when you're 15 and you think I'm not a complete idiot and you trust me a little bit, then maybe, maybe when you go to university and you pick up a book and you read it, it's got things in it that you're like, Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I've heard that before. Okay. I'm willing to accept that at least as being possibly true. Uh, so I think that's, um, that's the hope for me, right? Um, I wish I could say I could teach them to write. <laughs> is, uh, that, is, that is a struggle every single day. I try to do that too, um, to, to be decent, uh, to express themselves in it. Because of course, it, much like your field of study, uh, being thoughtful and uh, being open to new ideas uh, and to be critical is, is, is so important to be a functional adult <laughs> and right. not to fall in the traps. You know, mm-hmm. it was, I, I just got back from uh, New York City uh, and I'd never been to the Statue of Liberty. And, and so I went uh, this time and I was terribly impressed. Mm. And I always go into these things like, oh, this is going to suck, right? <laughs> is it, is it, this is just going to be, I'm just going to get fed back the things that are in the textbook. Mm. Um, and uh, as a comparison, I went to Ellis Island before. And Ellis Island, they kept on referring to the fact that there were only 2% of the people who came into the United States through Ellis Island were rejected. Oddly enough, or perhaps not oddly, no mention of post 1921. I'm like, yeah, there was a quota system. That's why they were they were rejected. <laughs> they never got in here. It's like mm-hmm. They weren't even allowed off the boat, literally. Right. Uh, and so then we went to to um, to go to to the Statue of Liberty, and it was very refreshing. They have a three part video series, like it's like 19 minutes long. And the last one is is this notion of liberty being the sort of the, the expression of the human heart. And then they showed all the protest movements. Uh-huh. They said it hasn't stopped. We've not got there. I'm like, oh, thank God! <laughs> I was—I think my fists were like balled up. I was there with my friend Holly, and like standing there, my usual, you know, defiant self. And I think she heard me like sigh. I was just like, oh, yes, they got yay. it right. <laughs> yeah, they got it right. Oh, there's Stonewall. Oh, there's the civil rights movement. Oh, there's a, there's a labor movement. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you know, so, uh, it, it, it's it, that type of thing. Um, it was it was refreshing to see that, I guess.
0: That's great. Well, I know I could, at least I could say, well, two things I can add that if you don't think you're able to teach students how to write, you are able to get them to start to learn how to think, perhaps not as clearly as we would like to <laughs> do, but they're getting on that path. And one of the reasons I'm proud to call you a colleague is I love hearing back from students for when we have the intersection of the same students that. Even though there may be students that politically may view things from a different point of view that we have, but they definitely respect your point of view because you respect theirs, that you're a teacher, that they know that, again, you will correct them when they're wrong, but you're going to do it in a way that doesn't make them feel awful, that they know that I still respect you as a human being, a person we can talk about. Hockey or football or baseball or anything else, but huh, right is right is wrong is wrong, and this is right. part of the course. But that doesn't mean that you're a bad person, and that's something that I think we have too little of in the United States of getting students to recognize that. Yeah, you may be wrong, but that doesn't mean you're awful. Right, <laughs> and and, and conveying and that do, to students. <laughs> yeah,
1: how how can we expect you to know this? Right. right. I mean, like, I can't. I, can't I, there's you're no way. A lovable adolescent. Oh, we can't yeah. expect you to. I can't, no, I mean, there's a reason I'm standing up here i the one the one <laughs> telling you. This this is what you should be reading, you know? And, and if, if you already knew this stuff, I, I, I would just sit down, I guess. You know? right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Watch some Star Wars. So,
0: that's know? one of the strange things for me as a teacher, where I've also never gotten when certain teachers will say, well, these students don't know this, or they come to my class that they don't know. Well, that's why I'm the teacher. It's like right. kind of my job. I, right. I don't have any control about over what they did before they got to my classroom. I only have control over, when they're there so if they didn't get it then I've got to give it to them and like I said, if they didn't learn how to write, then I've got to teach them how to put that sentence together because they're going to be writing a whole lot in my class all year. And I can't put up with this. So right, right. if I've got to be the English teacher, if I've got to be the math teacher, if I've got to be the history teacher, it just goes with the yeah. territory. All right. Well, and, and, you know,
1: to to the point, and you you know who I'm talking about here, I, I will not name his name because <laughs> he, um, he's, he's long, he graduated a few years back. And one of my favorite things I ever saw is this young man who had both of us. Who is a staunch libertarian, and neither you nor I are libertarians. <laughs> um, and in the little bit of the yearbook, his like favorite teachers is Mr. Turner and Mr. Corrigan. I was like, really? <laughs> I fought with you for two years, man. <laughs> but again, exactly. like, yeah, it's it's about knowing that you know we you are you are loved, even if I think you're off. <laughs> you know? Right. right.
0: For sure. <laughs> Oh, is there anything else that you wanted to mention or talk about? That
1: you know, I, I i've I've become very much heartened um, over the past years, and whether it's because of Watchmen on HBO or not, <laughs> <laughs> that when the the term Tulsa race riot or Tulsa riot or, or Greenwood comes up, that people actually know what is being talked about, and that's very heartening to me. That that there's a lot of pushback against. It, you know, I, I think the the, the core notion. I, I think I would I would try to, to get out of if you will soft curriculums. Like somebody else's gain is not your loss, right? And as you know, my one of my favorite things in the world is the, the IWW that the injury to one <laughs> is an injury to all. Mm-hmm. You know, so and I've it is as difficult as these times can be. i I'm, I'm I'm very happy to hear discussion, uh, of these atrocities, these, these, uh, events, um, the misdeeds uh, mm-hmm. to, to bring them to light and, and to own them. You know, when you, when you make a mistake, you got to own it. And as a nation, we've got to own our errors right. so that we can move on and, and, and not forget because moving on oftentimes is let's forget, right. Like, let's, <laughs> let's,
0: let's try let's to knowledge.
1: Yeah. And remedy the situation, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, um, I was thinking previously, you know, the, the whole notion of forty acres and a mule, uh, and and that promise of of economic reparation and equality, uh, and that it, it still hasn't happened, and then it's not not only has it still not happened, it's continuing right. to happen. That it's, you know, we we've talked about in the past, and I you I, I you probably remember the number of years, what, but it was what forty years, I'll say, uh, of what a person of color has to have in terms of no economic missteps, mm-hmm. something as simple as bouncing a check, right? Missing a payment, you know, you lose your job, you miss a, a phone payment. Now you, you, it's done, right? It's, 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 it's done mm-hmm. uh, or, or some insurmountable number of years before you could even reach that middle-class uh, level of lower middle-class, which of course, as we know, then goes on to, to uh, further the economic, livelihood of your, your children and, and your children's children and without and that's of course what the, the great failure of reconstruction or the great the, the why the attack on reconstruction is so harmful is that it's just perpetuated and and, right. and that, that economic so much of it's economic economic subjugation of people of color in the United States continues and, and it has its roots going back to 1619 and, and had reconstruction been allowed to succeed. And Greenwood, of course, was the great and then of course I always tell the kids, you know, there's no you hate those who you oppress. <laughs> and there was there's nothing more infuriating to the bigot than those that you were bigoted against succeed. Right, uh, and that's why it was so. That, that, that's Greenwood. That's Marcus Garvey. You know, that you don't want us. Cool. We'll leave. Oh no, 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 no. You need to
0: stay here right. and be oppressed, right. <laughs> so we can take your money and your property. You just can't <laughs> take that capital away from no. us. Yeah, get back here. Get back here. You now, so yeah, that's it's amazing when you mention Greenwood, and Tulsa. It's like I tended to think that I was fairly well informed and literate person, but I had never heard of Greenwood and Tulsa until four years ago when I was in an NEH program um, about um, studying basically immigration throughout the course of the 20th century. And it was brought up in the context of the beginning of the new Negro and after the red summer of 1990. And again, I hadn't heard of many of the, oh, what was the one? Um, uh, this right there was the one Ving Ray's movie or the Florida community. Um, oh yeah, um, not uh uh, I can remember. <laughs> yeah, I remember. There was that one kind of isolated film that I sort of remember, yeah. but then hearing it that the widespread uprisings, rebellions, and massacres. Not right. only that stuff, but that then continued afterwards and largely because of sort of well, among the money things, World War One, but black troops coming back and having yep. been in Europe and seeing something different, like, oh, you want me to do what again? Oh no! <laughs> right. Make the
1: world safer democracy, but you ain't getting it back here. <laughs> right.
0: But just like as you mentioned with the now with Watchmen, Lovecraft Country, now there it is heartening to see people at least having a no, having a notion about what was going on, and so that hopefully we can learn to acknowledge it, grapple with it, and maybe do something better. But even I didn't know anything about that until four years ago in my mid fifties. <laughs>
1: right, and, and that's the thing is is there, there are times when I've. You know, when something new about history comes out or so, or something that I just didn't know about. Cause that, that's the thing, you know, kids, because they don't know anything, they assume that, you know, everything when they <laughs> ask you, ask you weird questions. Like how much was a dollar worth in 1820? I, I will know a dollar. There were no dollars. It didn't exist. Um, so yeah, I, I, it took me into grad school to, to, uh, to learn about that. And, and that was, you know, but I didn't teach about it before. you. You come across to me new and it's like, Oh, I've been teaching something wrong for 15 years. You know, it's, so it's, Uh, And I tend not to be particularly humble. (laughs) It's it's, it's always very humbling when you're like, oh, I don't know everything. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Whoopsie. I thought that's a good way to stop. (laughs) Well,
0: Bob, thank you very much for sharing your considerable knowledge with us Uh this afternoon. It's always a pleasure.
1: Always said thank you, Milton. Uh, You're this is a wonderful podcast, and you're as you know uh, a person who I look up to uh, quite uh, every day. Every day, smartest man who walks in any room.
0: (laughs) Not quite second smartest, but thank you. (laughs) Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this week's show and that you found something in it to spark a deeper conversation leading to greater understanding. I'm Milton Allen Turner, and I invite you to join me again next week for more worldviews.